Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Before we start the episode, be sure to follow, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating. We'll be posting new episodes every two weeks, so there's more to look forward to. Thank you for tuning in to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. In today's episode of What About Death, I speak with Australian philosopher and author Dr. Patrick Stokes from Deakin University in Melbourne, who talks about the challenges we often experience when contemplating our own death. He also shares his interest and research in how we use online memorials to remember the dead. So thank you very much for uh, for taking the time today, Patrick, to, to join us to talk about death and dying. Thank you so much for having me, Sultram. Very pleased to be here. So uh, my first question is, which is what I ask uh, all of our guests, is what is your first either experience, recollection, memory of death? I know that it's something I've always been a little bit conscious of, particularly as a child, because my my mother, I, mean, I probably didn't know this when I was really little, so I'll come back to this, but I mean, I do remember things like, for instance, the first member of my family who died, um, that I really remember like going to the funeral and all of that stuff. I know there had been some before that. There was a great aunt who passed away. And I do remember being struck by that and being struck by the sort of, you know, the ceremony around it and, you know, the how, how kind of a significant thing it was that she died when she did. Death was always kind of, I guess, around in the sense that my mother is a retired lawyer and she spent most of her career, um, or a lot of her career anyway, specialising in wills and probate mm. and, um, you know, help. And so as soon as I turned 18, suddenly it was very convenient having me while I was still living at home, but being 18 and therefore old enough to witness wills. So I quite often got um, roped into witness people's uh, will signings because it was okay. just something that mum was doing. And, you know, it's like, oh, you're around, you can witness this. I remember once we'd always start on the back page, right, with these wills. You'd have this will. It'd be several pages long. You'd start on the back page and the, the client would sign the back page and then mum would and I would um, to witness it. And you'd start on the back page and work your way backwards towards the front of the, the document. And I remember saying to mum once, why do we do that? Why is it we sign the bottom of each page but we sign, start at the back and work towards the front? And she said, well, legally the will is valid from the moment you've signed um, and witness the back page, right? That's the only bit that's legal. Signing the rest of the pages is just for security. So the theory is if the client drops dead halfway through the signing, <laughs> at least you've got a legally valid will even if you haven't signed it. And this is how I learned not to ask those questions. <laughs> how interesting, though. Who knew that? <laughs> All right. Now, you, your interest is in self-identity, in relation to death or personal identity. So where did that uh, interest come from? What influenced that interest? So I um, have done a lot of my work on a guy called Søren Kierkegaard, who was a 19th century Danish philosopher. That He's a, a sort of a, a forerunner to existentialism. That's been a big sort of influence on me. I did my PhD on him and I've written books on him and so on. And, um, and I still do work on him, but I've sort of broadened out into some other areas. But 
there's still very much a kind of Kierkegaardian cast to some of what I do. The philosophy of personal identity is a really big topic in contemporary philosophy. It's it's one of those big sort of, you know, very active areas of discussion. There's all sorts of different theories about what makes you the same person across time. How do I know that the person who woke up in bed this morning is the person who went to bed last night? If I think about me 20 years from now, what connects me to that future self? What connects me to the past self that I remember being as a child? This is a very active area of, of discussion. And one of the interesting things about it, of course, is that although, is it in what's sometimes called the Anglo-American or the analytic philosophical tradition, that those questions get asked in a way that strips them of their historical background and also strips them of a lot of their practical and certainly spiritual or soteriological implications. But the background to those discussions is very much to do with soteriology and therefore to do with death. So a lot of philosophers who work in personal identity theory will tell you their questions ultimately go back to John Locke in the late 17th century and, and when he, he sort of writes that, you know, it's consciousness, an extension of consciousness that makes you the same person across time. What they leave out of that is that he's actually engaging in a question that is actually about life after death. He's actually asking, you know, how do I know that in the resurrection world that he as a 17th century English Protestant is promised um, after death, how does he know that he'll be the same person in that resurrection world as he is now and therefore will only be punished or rewarded in that resurrection world for the things that he, he does now and in this life? So there's this kind of background interest in death that's going on in that um, personal identity discussion and that intersects with some other philosophical interests that I have in terms of our relationship to the dead, you know, the nature of death itself, which is, again, a really active area of, of contemporary philosophy. Do you think your study and your research has influenced your own personal view of death? And if so, in, in what way? I'd love to say that it has. And it probably has in the sense that I take the existence of the dead more seriously than I maybe did. I don't, personally, I don't believe in a sort of a, a posthumous conscious existence where we go into a resurrection world or whatever and, and live in another world. I don't believe in that sort of thing. But I do, I think, take the idea that the dead are people to whom we have duties and we have a, a sort of, we owe moral regard. And the dead, even though they are not, in one sense, in another sense, they are, and we still love the dead. I, I think I take a lot of that more seriously, or at least I have a more kind of philosophical, more philosophical confidence in saying that because of the work I do. In terms of my actual relationship to the thought of my own death, and this is something that continental philosophers, European-style philosophers, which is the tradition I guess I was trained in, are often accused of, of being too focused on, all right, being too focused on our own death and not on, on the death of other people. In terms of, my, of, of that, I don't think philosophy has actually helped. I actually thought at one point that I would fear death less if I studied it philosophically, that if I you know, worked on this stuff long enough, I'd come to no longer be absolutely terrified by the thought of my own death. But it, it hasn't worked. And I have to say, talking to some friends of mine who also work in philosophy of death, that seems to be a common feature, that it actually doesn't necessarily do much to solve the the practical and existential problem of mortality. It just means you've got a more sophisticated way of explaining that problem. So what do you think uh, influences that, that fear that we do seem to have, and I think particularly in the West, that surrounds death? So there's some interesting discussion on this that I think I, I tend to agree with, which suggests that there's actually several different fears of death. 
not necessarily one fear of death. There's a fear. So um, my colleague Kathy Barron sometimes talks about this, that, you know, there's a fear of just um, non-existence as such, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around, but there seems to be that. There's uh, there's a really uh, interesting book on this by Mark Johnson, who's an Australian philosopher who's been in America pretty much forever, called Surviving Death. And he says, look, on the one hand, we fear that our projects and things won't carry on. So it's a sort of fear you might have like, oh, if I die tomorrow, who's going to um, raise my children or mm. look after my pets or write my books or that sort of thing? There's that sort of fear. But there's another kind of fear which is just, and it's a bit harder to describe, but the fear that the way Johnson puts it is that this arena of presence and action that I experience myself as being right now won't exist anymore. This idea that, the self that I experience myself as being, that that won't be there. There'll be nothing it is like to be me anymore. That's a harder thing to describe, but I think it's also a more fundamental part of that that sort of fear of death. And, I mean, there are ways around it. One is you can believe in um, some sort of afterlife where your existence continues, so there will be future experience, and so that fear of death loses some of its bite. You can also, I guess, um, believe in a sort of in reincarnation, although, again, there are different kinds of, of, of ways in which you can be reincarnated, but that will take some of the sting out of that. And, of course, there's also um, the sort of path that Buddhism takes, which is to sort of say that, well, I'm not going to tell you how that works, but, you know, that um, yeah, the, the path that Buddhism takes of saying that, look, you're worrying about the ongoing existence of a self, which is not the sort of thing that really ultimately exists anyway or which is the sort of thing that can be said to, to continue on or not continue on. So there are different paths out of that fear of death, I guess. So do you think, uh, you know, based on what you were saying there, do you think some of that is what influences the the stigma and taboo, even around the topic of death? People are so afraid, almost like a, a fear of prophesying, you know, their death mm. if they actually talk about it. And, you know, people have such difficulty using even the words death and dying and dead and we talk about kicking the bucket and, you know, all yeah. of these things to sort of try and be avoidant. Do you think some of what you're talking about, and particularly the self-identity, we relate so dearly and heavily on our identity that that influences the stigma and the taboo? Yeah, I mean, we're always told that we live in a culture that has heavy taboos around death. Uh, and we all just sort of, I think, take that for granted. A couple of years ago, I saw John Troyer, who's a really remarkable guy, actually, and he runs the um, Centre for um, Death Studies. I can't remember exactly what it's called, I'm sorry, at um, the University of Bath in the UK. And I saw him give a talk in which he said, we don't have a taboo around death as such. He said, look, you know, turn on the TV and see how many deaths you see in the course of a, a, the average television broadcast, like, you know, whether it's a movie, whether it's news, uh, whatever it is. There's death everywhere. We see death everywhere. What I think we do actually have more of a taboo about or, or we find ways of, of trying to deny is the fact of our own death. And certainly philosophers have talked extensively about the way in which the denial of death is built very deeply into Western culture. Ernest Becker wrote the sort of classic book on this um, from a sort of a Freudian perspective. But, you know, there, there is, I think, this reluctance to confront the fact of our own death, which is, I think, what drives a lot of that taboo. It's It's not so much about not wanting to confront death as such. It's about not wanting to confront the fact of our own death. And this is where I come back to Kierkegaard. There's a really remarkable passage in his book, Concluding Unscientific Postscript. He says, look, I can study all the facts about death that you like, right? I can study, you know, what poison will kill you or, you know, what the rate of decomposition or who, which famous people have died at what ages. And I can do all of that stuff. I can understand all these facts about death. 
But the fact that I will die is not something that I understand by just understanding death as such. The fact of my own death is something that I can only confront in a very subjective, first personal way, which is not captured by all the facts that we can put together about death. Now, we all know in the abstract that we're all going to die, right? Each of us knows, okay, there's, you know, the classic um, syllogy. There's a moment in um, The Death of Ivan Illich, Tolstoy's short story where he says, or novella, uh, where Illich is lying there dying and he says, at school we were taught all men are mortal, Caius is a man, therefore Caius is mortal. He said, well, that's fine for Caius, but not for me, <laughs> not for me, little Vanya. And he goes through this whole thing of, you know, it's it's fine for humanity in the abstract to be mortal, but when you really confront first personally the fact that you will die, that's an altogether different thing. Now, you also have spent time researching memorialization. So how do you think that's changed over time, how we, how we memorialize mm-hmm. our people after they've died? Well, a big part of my work in recent years has been about the dead online, uh, the way in which the internet has changed our relationship to death and to the dead more particularly. And uh, this is one of the things I discuss in my forthcoming book, Digital Souls. Sorry, I just had to get a plug in there somewhere. It's a bit, a bit grubby, but, you know, um, my pub- <laughs> the publisher won't like it if I don't. It has, I think, in some ways taken things we were always doing and just sort of extended them. So, for instance, talking to the dead. That's a very natural thing to do. We often talk to the dead in our, in our minds even and just walk along and say, oh, I wish Dad was here. Dad, what would you do right now if I was here, you know, and that sort of thing. I'm sometimes do, doing very inept bits of DIY around the house. I can sort of hear my father going, oh, you're doing that wrong. I'm like, oh, what do I do? You know, so, yeah. <laughs> but, but it has changed some of the material practices around that in interesting ways, one of which is that it used to be that if you wanted to go and talk to the dead, in a way that was kind of face-to-face, you had to go out to the cemetery and stand at a graveside and talk to them that way. There are other ways, of course, but that's something we, we've typically done. Now, of course, you can do that just by bringing up your social me- the social media profile of the person who's died. And people do this all the time. They post uh, messages on people's Facebook walls, for instance, often on their birthdays. So I've got a couple of friends who have died and People come along every birthday and say, you know, I can't believe it's been so long you've been gone. I wish you could see how big, you know, little Timmy or whoever is. You know, there's this ongoing dialogue with the dead that in some ways is facilitated by by these new digital uh, affordances that we have. It's a one-way dialogue, at least so far. Of course, there is a risk that with some of the new technologies that are emerging, there will in fact be a, a sort of a simulacrum of genuine communication with the dead through chatbots and things like that. That's something that's really emerging right now and is just starting to become more and more prominent. But it does, I think, on the whole, it, it's a positive thing in that it means that the dead are less vulnerable to the uh, vicissitudes of human memory. It means that the dead can persist among us in a richer or a more kind of available way but again, that's something humans have always done. We've always painted portraits. We've always made death masks. We've always, well, actually, that's a relatively modern thing, last few hundred years. We've always kept locks of hair or made statues of the dead and so on. We've always tried to keep the phenomenality of the dead, how they appear to us, how they present themselves. We've always tried to keep that with us. And we now have richer tools for doing that. But I also think the flip side of that is that it does make the dead vulnerable to new kinds of, of exploitation and, and overwrite as well. What about the impact of grief? Because it seems to be, uh, or to me, that the online memorial memorialization is much more a, 
present moment thing. I think historically mm. how we've memorialised, there's been a real sense of the past, whereas using digital and online, it's really still bringing the person into the present as if, mm. as if they're almost still here. So do you think it has an impact on how people grieve, either for better or for worse? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, Sultry. And that's partly to do with the weird sort of temporality of the internet, that it, it collapses everything into a sort of eternal present because all moments of time are the same or roughly the same number of mouse clicks away. Um, so things don't recede into the past in the same sort of way. So in um, a few years ago, there was, I think around 2008 or so, there was um, a bit later than that, sorry, um, 2012, there was a Spanish chap who took Google to court and he said, every time you, somebody Googles my name, it brings up the fact that I went bankrupt and had to sell some property in 1998. And that's not fair. It's damaging my reputation. Mm. And so this went all the way through the European courts and it ended up with the courts uh, affirming that there is what they called a right to be forgotten. Mm. Now, to a philosopher, that sounds kind of tricky because to have a right to something creates a duty, which means there's a duty to forget, but forgetting is something we don't normally take to be under our direct control. So how can you have a duty to do something you can't actually consciously do? But anyway, it's an interesting thought because it, it's it's to do with the way in which, yeah, time is sort of collapsed and compressed in that way. And that is true on social media as well, right? All of the photos of the person are sort of available now, kind of temporalized in the way that they're laid out, but they're all kind of there. All of the things that they've written are all still there. They're all still present and available. Does To get to your question finally, sorry, um, does that um, change the nature of grief? Possibly. It possibly does. It may actually help the grief in some respects because it may mean that there's more opportunity to remember the person as they were, you know, quite often... How we die, particularly if it's long and protracted and obscene, that can sort of that can sort of override in people's memories what you were like, and that can sort of take over. But you know, on social media, somewhere you're always younger and happier, and um, and and sort of you know visible in that way. That may, maybe that sort of helps. One thing we do know is that the persistence of the dead online. People respond to it very, very differently. Elaine Caskett's written quite a lot about this, about how there are different kinds of digital temperament, if you like, and people respond differently. So some people, I'll I'll give you an example, actually. um, There was a a British soldier who was killed in Afghanistan and um, I was talking to his sister who was saying that there was this big sort of disagreement within the family where on the one hand you had the siblings of the the um, the soldier who died all wanting to keep his social media profile there because they found comfort in its ongoing presence, mm. whereas some of the older relatives were really distressed by having it there. They said it's just uncanny having it there and having him pop up as a friend and we just don't like it. So people respond very, very differently and they, they maybe do take what they need from it in different ways. And one thing we may see is we may may start to see more ceremony or more ritual arising around this stuff so people kind of know what to do. There's been Mm. some interesting work on this in terms of Confucian morning rituals and whether the sort of digital traces we leave could be used in morning rituals in the same way that Confucianism talks about as a way to sort of structure grief and to make sure that it's not excessive but also not deficient. And I think the memorialization, because online or digitally it is there sort of in perpetuity, Mm. it will be there forever, Whereas even historical memorialization, it will deteriorate. You know, whether it's a lock of hair, it will at some point deteriorate. And mm. and I'm sort of wonder how people's 
you know, understanding of impermanence will be influenced if there is this memorialization that never changes over time and is there mm. indefinitely. We need to be really careful there because, in fact, digital stuff is is actually quite vulnerable. And we have this assumption that once something's digital, it's it's there forever. Mm. And I think to a certain extent, we're firstly, we're generalizing from the way the internet is right now. In fact, there's a lot of the early internet that's just irrecoverable. But also, yeah, things are vulnerable. Facebook could shut down tomorrow and your whole digital flesh there, as uh, some philosophers have called it, um, will be gone. You know, all that stuff can just vanish in an eye. You know, it's, it, these things, are, they're still vulnerable. They're vulnerable to commercial pressures. They're vulnerable to, you know, power failures or, you know, catastrophic server destruction. Um, they're also vulnerable to obsolescence of format. One of the things I mentioned in the book Around 1988 or so, there was um, children across Britain recorded things in written form and in video and so on for what was meant to be called the Millennium Doomsday Book, right? And the idea was that um, it was meant to be the 900th anniversary of uh, the Doomsday Book, which was a, a book that basically um, set out who owned what in, in England, basically, who, who, who owned what bits of land and how many cattle and so on. It was essentially a taxation device. And the idea was that in the... In the late 80s, 900 years later, these kids would put together a digital doomsday book that would tell the world what life was like in late 20th century Britain. Mm. And um, they put the whole thing together. And now 10, 15 years on from that, you could still pick up the original doomsday book and read it if you can read Latin and you know how to read the um, abbreviations and so on. But all of this data these kids put together was in obsolescent formats. And it it actually took data scientists years as a project to recover all of that material and make it available again. So the data, the digital data, are more vulnerable than we think they are. And so there's commercial pressures, things like Facebook and Twitter and and even Google. At some point, they can turn around and say, "Look, we didn't sign up to be a graveyard. We didn't yeah. sign up to keep people alive in perpetuity forever. You know, we're here to make money. <laughs> so it's quite possible that they will actually, at some point." balk at having to store all this material from people who are dead, which as over time necessarily becomes a higher and higher proportion of their users. Yes. I mean, it's a very interesting topic. I can see how we're conditioned to view these things in certain ways and that that changes over time as well as society mm. changes and expectations change and so on. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you uh, today. So uh, thank you so much for taking some time uh, out of your new uh, year at university. <laughs> I really, really appreciate it and uh, uh, would love to talk some more actually at, at some point in the future. So Definitely. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Patrick. Good to talk to you. Please join me on the next episode of What About Death? when Dr. Jackie Campbell, a Southeast Queensland veterinarian, shares her views and experience of the importance of providing a specialist palliative care service for our pets when they are experiencing life-limiting or terminal illnesses. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. If you liked this episode, be sure to follow, subscribe and give us a five-star rating. We'll be posting new episodes every two weeks, so there's more to look forward to.